and welcome to Dialogue and Debate. My name is Emily Gow and I'm the Programme Officer here at Cumberland Lodge. If this is your first time joining us, uh, Dialogue and Debate is our regular series of webinars where we respond to key themes emerging from our conferences and other work, as well as other pressing issues arising in society. Our last Dialogue and Debate took place in February and we discussed the possible implications of Brexit, particularly in terms of our sense of identity and relationships between the UK and other countries within our four nations. We were joined by four panellists, including Sir Stephen Wall, who was formerly the UK's permanent representative to the EU, and Prime Minister Tony Blair's senior advisor on EU matters. If this topic interests you, um, you can watch the, the webinar on demand uh, via the read, watch, listen page of our website, or on SoundCloud and other major podcasting platforms. In honour of International Women's Day, uh, which takes place next, uh, week on the 8th of March. Today's webinar will be exploring women's perspectives on living through the COVID-19 pandemic over the past year and how we might move forwards towards a fairer society post-pandemic in which gender equality is reflected in policy and practice. So I'm delighted to welcome three guest panellists this morning. Uh, so welcome to Professor Rosie Campbell, Professor of Politics and Director of the Global Institute of Women's Leadership at King's College London. Deba Saeed, a women's rights act campaigner, activist and uh, employment solicitor and Senior Legal Officer for the Sexual Harassment at Work advice line um, called Rights for Women. And last but not least, last but not least, Kudzio Battle, who's the Head of Equalities and Strategy at Trade Union Congress. So thank you so much to the three of you for joining us this morning. Throughout the webinar, we'd like to invite our audience to submit questions. So you can do that on the, the Q&A function if you're watching on Zoom um, or by commenting on our Facebook live stream. We'll also be live tweeting. So it'd be great to hear your views and questions. Um, and you can tweet at Cumberland Lodge and use the hashtag dialogue debate. Um, so to get started, we're going to do a couple of quick polls um, to get a feel for uh, who's watching this morning. So the first poll will just pop up on your um, on your uh, screen now, and the question we're answer, ask, asking here is, what gender do you identify as? Just to get a sense of who is joining. Okay, interesting. So 79% um, female, 21% male. Okay, um, and the second question uh, we're going to ask, and just pop up now. Do you think your gender identity has affected your experience of the pandemic? Oh, wow. Okay, so we've got 16% saying yes, 48% saying no and 36% saying somewhat so most people feel like they have been affected to some degree um, which is what we're going to be discussing today um, how the, the pandemic has had an adverse effect on, on women um, so Kudzia if you don't mind we're going to start with you um, so what are some of the biggest challenges that, that women in the UK have faced um, over the past year as a result of Covid? Thanks um, so you know, there's no doubt that the pandemic has been unprecedented in the depth and the scope of its impact uh, across the entire fabric of life as we know it. But what it's done that we found particularly interesting, and I'm sure other panellists have found particularly interesting, is actually expose all the systemic and structural inequalities that exist that put women at the bottom in all the worst ways all the time. So, um, and I, and I don't think it's overstating it to say that however you cut it and however you look at it, women have borne the brunt of the worst effects of the pandemic in um, job losses, in um, 
um, really adverse pay and management practices in um, homeschooling. I'll talk about homeschooling in a minute. In um, accesses, um, access to the services that matter to women have been cut. They've been decimated, and all the things that. Um, women have relied on as part of their um, day-to-day working lives, their day-to-day working conditions have been taken away. And they've been easy to be, you know, to have taken away because there's been an um, an understanding that it's okay for women to bear the brunt. It's okay for those services, those support mechanisms, those systems um, to be reduced and removed. I was literally in a meeting before this, Um, where I was talking to the Royal College of Midwives and the cuts to um, maternity services have continued over this time and access to maternity services for our most vulnerable women, that's women that are pregnant, have also continued during this time. Um, So pay has been a massive issue. Access to sick pay has been a massive issue or lack thereof or women not making the threshold to even access sick pay. So of the people that can't access sick pay, 70% of those are women because they just don't earn enough in the first place. Um, women have been denied the right to furlough, so have been forced to either take significant pay cuts, go into work when it's unsafe, or leave their jobs or be made redundant entirely. And we know that the people accessing um food banks are predominantly women we know people that are um, accessing critical and urgent care services are predominantly women and we know women that are really shouting out and calling out for (laughs) the people that are calling out for help are predominantly women Um, and they are they have been the people at the forefront of the pandemic in terms of response as well. So our key workers, our public sector workers, women on the front line, women who haven't had access to PPP, you know, it's workers, sorry, that haven't had access to PPE. It's, it's been women in these instances. And I wanted to mention homeschooling and um, childcare specifically. We know that year on year, there's been cuts to childcare. There's been cuts to child children's services, birth to five. And, um, I'm a teacher. I was a head teacher, so I can talk for a long time about cuts to education generally. I won't. That's for another day. Um, and the impact that has. But um, the whole notion of homeschooling has had such an adverse impact on working mothers and what working mothers have been expected to achieve in this time. Now, I know all mothers, regardless of whether they're employed or not, are working mothers. But those people that have to deliver for their children, but also deliver to get a salary, have been doubly um, penalised during this time. And that's not to mention the way treat- teachers have been treated. You know, um, it wouldn't be for someone from the TUC who is impartial to say that the cuts and the way that schools have been um, treated during the pandemic is misogynist because teaching is predominantly a female profession. But I might say that if I didn't have my TUC hat on. So... However you cut it, it, it's women at the bottom of this. And there isn't any one particular area that I can tell you that has been, um, that is at the bottom of that. It's it's all round awful. And the things that we're looking at going forward and restructuring and rebuilding are going to require some serious looking at. Um, what I will say, though, is one of the areas that we've called on repeatedly is for the government to undertake 
sorry, to reinstate its gender pay gap reporting. So we know so that it's in black and white how women are being treated in terms of their salaries, but also for the um, Equalities and Human Rights Commission to hold the government to account to do an equalities impact assessment, which actually outlines in black and white what the impact of the pandemic and the actions that the government has taken in response to the pandemic has had on women. You know, I can tell you, um, spoiler alert, that it will come out awfully. And is that the reason it's not happening? I don't know, but we are calling on the EHRC to hold the government to account over that. Thanks, Christia. Yeah, that's a really good start, I think, to the discussion. Um, Rosie, I'm going to come to you next. Um, I was reading some research that you've done uh, recently um, about the percentage of women and men in politics with children and the ages of their children. Uh, Obviously, politics is your area of expertise. I was wondering um, if you might be able to talk a little bit about that um, and sort of answer the question, is politics a good place for women with caring responsibilities? um, And how does that compare with other sectors as well? Thank you. Um, yes, I mean, so um, I did some work with, work with my um, colleague, um, Professor Sarah Childs, in 2012, looking at the proportion of MPs who had didn't have children in their ages. And what we found in 2012 was that 45% of women MPs compared to 28% of MPs had no children. Um, and that, that when they did have children, they had fewer of them and they tended to be older. Um, and this is actually Although it reflects politics, it actually reflects um, professions as you any kind of profession as you move up the hierarchy. Kudzia mentioned um, the gender pay gap. The gender pay gap, pay gap is basically a fantastic way of measuring gender hierarchies. Um, you know who's who's at the bottom of an organisation and who's at the top. And if you've got a big gender pay gap, then women are at the bottom. And in and if that gender pay gap masks a kind of caring gap, um, because what we found is that in politics. Women had entered politics, but those who had children had done so to a much lesser extent. And again, we know that that's been true as women have broken through the glass ceiling around the world in different professions. Actually, it's been easier for childless women. Um, and before I come to your point about politics particularly, I'd just like to bounce off some of the points that Kudzia has made about why this is about gender. Um, because men have also been hit by the pandemic and there are men who have got um, partners who are female, who are um, key workers, who have stepped in and done childcare where they haven't done so before. And there will be a group of men out there who perhaps can be champions for how critical childcare is as core infrastructure that weren't, weren't around before. So that's an opportunity. But we do know that women have picked up the disproportionate burden of this childcare And we also know that lots of organizations are in the middle of making redundancies. And how are they going to look at performance evaluation over this last period? Um, We did some work um, at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College um, in in the middle of the last lockdown. Um, And we saw that many organizations did not actually have a policy for thinking about how are they going to evaluate performance for the period where schools were closed I personally, um, in a, a heterosexual dual earner, full-time working couple with two children, and I think we both can work at home and we're in an incredibly privileged position compared to many of the people Kudzu was talking about. I cannot tell you how stressful that period has been. Um, in the last lockdown, my husband's job was under threat and we had to, you feel responsible for your children's education. And yet we're in the privileged situation of having a garden, having two incomes, 
we hear stories of people being sent home, perhaps a single parent with two toddlers sent home from a call centre with a laptop and told to carry on as before. I mean, the impact has just been absolutely enormous. And the reason, one reason for that impact is because women's caring, as Kudzia says, is just taken for granted and has been taken for granted again and again and again. And coming out of this, and I'll now get to your question, I promise I won't ramble forever, although I really, really could. <laughs> now we get to the point of, of, you know, hopefully starting to come out of this crisis. If gender equality is not at the heart of that recovery plan, we're going to see massive regression in terms of the equalities that we have, the equality, the progress we have made, massive regression for all the reasons that Kudzia says. And one of the big problems is whose voices are heard inside the political system. One of the reasons we think it's absolutely so important to find out whether there are mothers who are politicians is because actually it does make a difference. We bring our experiences into the room with us and politicians are fantastic at um, our MPs in this country are very much involved with their constituencies and hear a lot of horrific stories about what people are experiencing. But there is no match for ensuring a diversity of lived experience in a decision-making room. And so the fact that we followed up that survey in 2017 or 18, um, we found that the gap between the newer cohorts had, had, had narrowed and there was, a, there was a greater proportion of women with children in the recent intakes in Parliament, which is fantastic. But we also know things like, um, I don't know if you remember the, 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 the uh, horrific sort of image of a heavily pregnant woman being um, wheelchaired into parliament to vote, because they're all of the kind of usual um, legal apparatus that, that are there to protect women, although not, not enforced sufficiently, don't apply in politics. So maternity leave, et cetera. We've just, um, Sarah Childs has just lobbied for, you know, worked with others and got baby leave. But our whole decision-making process it's not designed to put the voices of carers at the center. It's an afterthought. It's just something that women get on with. And we have got to challenge that if we're gonna recover from this and, and, and actually help those women that Kudzia described so beautifully. Thanks, Rosie. I think we'll come back to lots of those points um, throughout the webinar, but I'm just going to um, bring Deva into the conversation. Um, so Deva, you're um, in the field of sexual harassment. So I was just wondering if you've noticed any trends during the pandemic um, and whether it's affected workplace sexual harassment with people, well, most people working from home. Um, yes, um, I feel like we're going to be just frantically nodding at each other this whole um, seminar because obviously I completely agree with everything that's been said already um, and just to sort of just to sort of go back to where we started with the way that the pandemic has impacted we mean we, you know you've touched on some of the economic um, impact um, but also the social impact is um, it's still unfolding so of course one of the first things that happened when the pandemic hit was the reports of domestic abuse um, going through the roof. Um, at one point in April last year um, the police were arresting 100 people a day um, on domestic abuse uh, uh, allegations um, and we saw this was, you know, and this was a global thing that happened, um, and this happened before in previous um, epidemics in Ebola, um, in SARS. They had the same thing happened. Uh, domestic abuse uh, exploded, and we saw with the introduction of lockdowns, um, lots of women were, you know, women who were in abusive relationships or in lockdown with an abuser were um, really fearful to to leave their homes, and they were. 
struggling to access support services, support services which have been on their knees for years, as it were. But they also reported, um, you know, the, 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 the deterioration of their mental health just meant that they were not able to cope with the abuse as much as they usually would, I suppose, if we were not in a pandemic. But um, the impact of that was we saw an increase in femicide. We saw, um, you know, um, murders of women go up as well. So there was a sort of knock-on effect on, in terms of the pressure on existing social um, social services and other public services like access for help for homelessness, uh, for mental health services and the lack of refuge spaces. Um, so just bringing in that sort of the, the violence against women and girls element to all of this. Oh, sorry, I wanted to get on. Sorry, I wanted to sort of respond to something Rosie said as well. Um, it's not been um, a good week for women in politics as it is. If we, you know, if you look, for example, what is going on with the Alex Salmon investigation, um, allegations coming from New York of um, sexual abuses to women who are working for politicians. Um, we clearly have a very, very far way to go until women in working in politics or trying to be active in politics have a hospitable environment in which they can contribute and their contributions be valued. Um, and I speak to a lot of women who are working in politics who experience a lot of discrimination um, and really struggle to have their voices heard in terms of, you know, just contributing to policy making um, as well as being elected officials and being able to operate in those patriarchal systems which have uh, been in place for a long time and we are still trying to you know get modify um yes on sexual harassment specifically i'm really grateful for this opportunity to share some of this with you um because it's no surprise to us that um, women are, you know, continue to experience abuse um, in the workplace. And this happens at home and it happens in the workplace. It's basically anywhere where women are interacting with men, um, they experience abuse. And we are, we kind of put together this survey because we had a lot of journalists asking us, what about people working from home? What about, um, online sexual harassment um are these things exploding and i think we've got to put it in context because i think it's only a third of the workforce who actually went into sort of remote working and we know that actually women were still on the front line so we know 70 percent of nhs workers are women 80 percent of women are care workers and home carers and women make up 54% of all key workers. So from our point of view, we were still experiencing, um, we were still getting you know, a huge volume of calls from women who were working on the front line. And when the lockdown first happened, we actually got spiking calls of women who were in a harassing situation, but that situation, you know, harassers don't stop because there's a lockdown. The mis mis misogyny is incredibly adaptive. It is been adapted for hundreds and hundreds of um, years. And the first thing we saw was um, women telling us that the harassment situation was escalating into a stalking situation. So we had perpetrators turning up at their houses, finding out their personal addresses, um, 
coming to their homes and um, harassing them and stalking them. Um, and then we've done this survey and it kind of confirms what we already know. Women are still getting sexually harassed. They're experiencing this online. But I think it's wrong to kind of assume that any of this is new. Obviously, the Internet's been around for 20 odd years and anyone who was harassing somebody was perfectly able to do that through social media and those kinds of means anyway. Um, we see normally what we see is somebody being harassed in sort of multiple platforms, whether that be online, but also um, predominantly on social media. So we have seen an, uh, an uptick in image-based um, abuse, okay? So, you know, what is commonly known as revenge porn, um, uh, and that is uh, sort of, sometimes it can be sort of coercing women into, um, into different kind of situations based on images they have taken of them, sometimes with their consent, sometimes without their consent. Um, and just in terms of the sort of uh, the actual picture on the ground for women who are, are still working in those frontline roles, and we speak to a lot of women who are working in retail or, um, you know, they're, they're working in supermarkets and things like that. So things, the situation hasn't really changed for them. They're just carrying on working throughout this whole pandemic. But what they have been telling us is things like, um, perpetrators have less witnesses now because some people may have been furloughed, the office might have been empty, they might only have certain people coming into the office or, or into any workspace. And women are telling us that it's now, um, they're experiencing harassment, but uh, the perpetrator, there's less accountability because there are even less witnesses than there would usually be. Um, and then of course, we're seeing sort of discrimination happen on top of that. So perpetrators, um, one woman told me the other day that the entire um, workforce had been made for, had been furloughed except for her, and he sort of insisted that she come into the the office still, even though she was um, clinically vulnerable, and uh, he would harass her, and it would just be the two of them in the office, um, and he sort of refused to furlough her. Um, and then, of course, what we're seeing as well is more. Sorry, I feel like going on and on, so I'll stop here. But um, what we're seeing is uh, discrimination. Okay, so people who are being sexually harassed are now, or let's say they've made a they've made a report about it to their employer. Um, they are the ones that are being jumped to the front of the queue for for um, redundancy. So we have a lot of women telling us I'm being made redundant because my perpetrator, I've either made a complaint about this perpetrator before or he is, you know, taking this opportunity to kind of um, have me sacked. Um, yes. And so while um, we have seen things like the rise of kind of Zoom dick, as it's called, um, people kind of flashing on Zoom calls and doing inappropriate things. And there's been some sort of high profile stories about this. From our point of view, this is a sort of nothing new to us. Um, I'm sure maybe some people are experiencing that, but I don't think um, the kind of just the sort of I hate to say it, but the kind of more run-of-the-mill abuse that happens to frontline workers is being uh, acknowledged enough, to be honest. All right, stop there. Thanks, Diva. Yeah, that's really quite shocking to hear. But um, it's clear that lots of these issues have been ongoing and the pandemic hasn't necessarily started new ones, but actually 
it has highlighted that some of these problems exist, I think. Um, and I was just wondering whether anyone thinks that the pandemic is actually going to accelerate progress towards equality um, because people are more aware of the, the difficulties that women have had, uh, particularly through homeschooling um, and the added pressures. So I'll open that up to anyone. Um, could you? Yeah, I, I was, um, you know, it's certainly possible. But we need a real commitment for that to happen. And a commitment means that we need an investment. And investment has to take place in all the areas that affect women. If we're going to make a change, then we need to make sure that those response services that Deba mentioned are fully funded, they are highlighted, they're supported, they're resourced, and people can access them. We need to make sure, like Rosie said, that maternity services, care services, and support for the decision makers enables mothers and carers to be part of the decision-making process. If we don't see real action followed by um, real um, check writing and, you know, um, Rishi's out there delivering his budget at the minute and um, with real areas that impact women, then unfortunately it won't. I mean, we can't let it roll back. We've, we've all got a role to play where we can't let it roll back to how it was and we can't pretend to unsee the things that we've seen or have further exposed. Um, and I think we also have a commitment to really highlighting the values that are important. Rosie really, um, I think, hit the nail on the head when she says we need to think about what is important. We need to value things like care and we need to value the role that women, that mothers, that um, people play in society and enable those roles to not only be functioning, but also to be influential. And um, um, let's see, personally... I'm a born cynic. Uh, I've been around too long, um, um, but we shall see. Um, but if, if the money is there and if the will is there, then it will happen. Um, I think, I mean, one of the, I mean, it's incredibly depressing that things have to get so bad to create change. But sometimes fury is energizing. And so many people are so furious that there is an opportunity. Um, but I think there are some real challenges in terms of, I think if you look inside the, our current government and the, and, at the, and the Conservative Party at the moment, there are some women in there who really are lobbying for change and have, um, you know, for example, got the Prime Minister to um, commit to the notion of a 50-50 parliament in a video. That doesn't seem to me the kind of thing that he would normally have signed up for. There are, um, there are women, Allegra Stratton and so on, inside number 10 who... Who, who care about these issues at least, which I think is a big change from perhaps the original kind of um, Boris Johnson coterie. And I think there's a real job to be done to tie the levelling up agenda to gender equality, because as both Hudsia and Deba have explained, they're intrinsically linked. Economic inequality and um, vulnerability to abuse on the basis of gender and disadvantage on the basis of gender are linked. It can happen to anybody at any um, position in society, but the fewer privileges and the less power you've got, the more vulnerable you are. And the levelling up agenda, I think, has been focused on the kind of, um, on, 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 forgive me if this is clumsy language, but on working class white men and a failure to recognise that levelling up is so much, is so much to do with ethnicity and gender. Um, and that, uh, that is the problem that we need to, we've got this particular government with, and an opportunity in terms of this levelling up agenda to try and make the case for investment in, in social justice. But the lens is one that is perhaps sometimes quite hostile, 
the issues of gender and um, racial inequality. And, and it's going to be a big challenge to deal with that. Yeah, I mean, just to jump in on that, um, I mean, I think it says everything that the first thing the government did when the pandemic hit was tell employers that they don't have to do the gender reporting um, because it wasn't a big burden for them to do that. Um, and it sort of just says everything about their priorities. Um, and it was very early on, you know, there was no employers screaming, we can't do this. Um, it was um, really bizarre, to be honest. But um, I agree, obviously, with everything that's been said, but just to sort of, there have, there have been some, you know, sort of my, uh, changes, like just that have accidentally had to happen because they just um, had to innovate. So, for example, when the pandemic first hit, there was a huge problem with women being able to access um, sexual and reproductive health services, okay? So um, there was restriction to access to abortions, there were abortions being cancelled, women couldn't get access to their contraceptive pills, all of this. Um, so they had to innovate and they had to they had to do things. So, for example, now they've brought in um, they're doing a consultation because they couldn't possibly do it just <laughs> because it's a good idea. But um, they're bringing in a consultation to uh, be able to buy the pill over the counter um, and things like that, which are you know deeply over long overdue. There's no need for it to be so paternalistic. And there there are lots of things in the um in the healthcare sector and things like that that have been happening. So those will make, I think, a bit of a difference to people. And I think they've just had to have happened. But um, yes, I think what is so important if you like pick up on, I, I mean, obviously we're not watching the budget right now, but w when the budget comes today, it will be clear to see what the, you know, the, the priorities are. And this could have been a real opportunity if you are serious about you know, fixing gender inequality, which the UN women have said, 25 years of gender equality has been wiped out. Okay, what are you going to do about it? It would, this would be this perfect opportunity to invest in important sectors like the care sector, like childcare services, which, um, you know, should be seen as high value, economically viable things to sort of invest in. You know, there's a research saying that um, creates more jobs than, um, in the construction industry, if you invest, I can't remember what it was, the, the amount, but it can create as many jobs. Um, and right now we need to create jobs. Um, that needs to happen. But will it happen? I, I'm, I'm also a cynic and I, <laughs> I, um, I'm, I don't, I don't, I don't believe it. And I think there is, there is a sort of separate issue going on um, in my sector, which is the Borg sector. The government is putting together a strategy, updating its um, Borg strategy. Um, and unfortunately, what we see is the government um, seems to be kind of making political decisions that they want to separate domestic abuse out of the Borg strategy because of everything that's happened with domestic abuse recently. And a lot of sort of critics are saying that they basically want to make it not a gendered issue. When women's organizations have been fighting for years for domestic abuse to be understood as a gendered issue, as gender-based violence um, rooted in misogyny. Um, and now the government kind of want to separate that out. And that has a huge um, impact on the way that services, you know, funding for those services will be commissioned, the way that any pots of money will be um, divided. Um, and we'll see again, what we will see is that women will be the losers and that especially women of color. Um, and that is, you know, that's a four year strategic plan. So this is sort of, 
you know, this isn't just sort of knee-jerk reaction to the pandemic. This is going to be going forward for a long time. Um, and yeah, so that's, you know, it's difficult. It's difficult. I think, I think you know, I think one of the main things actually, um, I would say actually in terms of addressing some of these issues and these webinars are so important, but I think we need to kind of commit to more data being gathered on this. Um, although there's been lots of reports, I think the government you know, is not really collecting data specifically in terms of how the impact has been on, on women specifically or gender specifically. And I think that would be sort of at least the very minimum to be doing if you're sort of serious about unpacking gender inequality as a consequence of the pandemic. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Diva. Um, on that point, I'm interested to know how much of this research and campaigning is, is being done by women and, and what's the role of men in all of this? Um, and do you think if more men were kind of on board, that would, that would change things, accelerate progress and, and, and make people listen a little bit more? Um, what, what are your views on that? Well, I think that... Um it's slightly tangential because there are men who care about this issue these issues and really do campaign but i think if you want to connect um in this current situation we perhaps are not so good across we're very good at making the moral arguments and they should stand alone but unfortunately they don't always and i think there are some strategic arguments that we are not sort of we're, we're not we're not sort of um mobilized to deal with um across this sort of issue and one of them is that in the 2017 and 2019 election, there was a massive gender gap in terms of voting. Young women were much more likely to vote for the Labour Party than young men. And that's never happened in the UK before to this extent. Um, and I'm not really sure that politicians are really aware of that because as you're talking about data, breaking data down by gender sometimes isn't routinely done. And so everyone's talking about the age impact of party choice it's really driven by young women, young women. And when I say young, I'm talking about under 50. So I'm a young woman in this category. Um, and uh, we need to be much better at making these strategic arguments. In the United States since 1980, there's been an awareness of that gender gap. And I'm not saying we want to move to their kind of polarized politics, we don't. But it has been a way of getting women's issues, gender equality issues on the agenda. And we just got to get better at doing that. I think I think Rosie's absolutely right. And there was such a strength and depth of feeling. We did a poll um, at the beginning of um, last month with Anna Whitehouse, who's known online as Mother Pucker, about the impact the um, pandemic is having on mums. And we had 55,000 responses within an hour. 55,000 responses because... Um, People want to be heard. People have got something to say about it. People have got experiences to share. And I think I think men need to amplify it. I think men need to join the conversation. But one thing I'm, and it comes from being a minority in a number of ways, it's, it's tiring having to carry the burden both for yourself and for others. It's having to be responsible for what you do, but also having to be responsible for bringing people along and educating them and informing them. And I don't think it's beyond us to demand that men should step up, that men should step up, men should educate themselves. Oh, my boss is going to tell me off. Men should educate themselves and men should take the time to realise that 
guess what? They didn't birth themselves. They didn't get here by themselves. Our issues that affect us are everyone's issues. And just because it actually positively benefits you at the minute from the structures and systems that exist doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. And I do think we need to um, go in the direction of doing things that are the right thing to do. And I think rather than um, focusing on men, we need to focus on listening more to women and listening to more women all across the spectrum. Because we know as well that if you're a young black woman, nobody listens to you. If you're a, if you're a woman um, who's below a certain income threshold, nobody listens to you. If you're a woman over 55, guess what? No one listens to you either. So there are a whole group of women that really are... Um, pushed out are disaffected and are penalized by um, our very progressive inclusive society and can I just say Rosie the fact that I'm still considered a young woman today is the best thing I've learned today so thank you um, but I, I, I do think we need to look at those things and Diva mentioned um, um, what, you know questioning why gender pay gap reporting was halted who, who does that benefit not collecting that data you know, and I think we need to look at that because what it would have done is shown and embarrassed people and it would have called people to take action against that. Um, and I think we we need to, and I know that's a really roundabout way because it does make me really angry, um, but we're marginalised from our own conversations. Um, going to stop there. Yeah, no, I want to I want to get in on that. Yeah, <laughs> I completely agree. There is... Um, absolute lack of urgency just the pace is so slow you know we're still at equality is nice to have but not fundamental not you know that's you know that the whole gender pay reporting thing just is it completely exemplifies that um of all the silly things that could have been you know uh, taken a burden off of employers uh, why that says everything um okay men uh, okay so i think about this quite a lot because uh, when i you know, when I get asked to speak at events, sometimes people are like, look, are you going to upset the men in the room? And I, like, I, I don't intend to, but I think we have a serious issue with, especially in the work I do. Obviously, I'm working in violence against women. And of course, violence against women is mainly perpetrated by men. Um, what do I think in terms of your specific question, you know, how to do that? I think let's look at kind of what we're asking in this question, you know, we're asking, I think it's too little to be asking for just like solidarity and allyship, actually. I think we need much more kind of acknowledgement that male privilege is, um, is a responsibility and men have a responsibility to dismantle kind of patriarchal systems specific barriers that hold women back they have more than just show solidarity they have to do work to um to transform those power dynamics because unfortunately they are the ones that hold the power um we can't do it we're just knocking on the door waiting asking them to do it so it has to be um, more than that um and i would say like we have to go wider than just gender of course it has to be a proper understanding of intersectionality um so <laughs> intersectionality so we're really you know we're we've been asking for the you know since <laughs> since asking since you know centuries just to understand um this but i think we need to now be asking even more of men in that sense um and i think there are some simple simple things that can be done um 
you know, even if a man isn't a senior leader in their organization or whatever, they can just, it can start at home. And that can be, begins with distributing domestic tasks, distributing chores um, equally, because that is one of the key things actually we've seen in the pandemic, um, the burden on women to kind of run the household and keep working and do the whole homeschooling. Um, they are, women are at, they're, they're beyond burnt out. Like the mental health of women right now must, you know, I'm not sure who is tracking this, but I think it is um, even though just anecdotally talking to my friends who have young kids, they are at their wits end. Um, so I think, and if you are a man who is in a senior leadership position, that's really important because obviously you hold the keys of power there. And so I would say there are just some basic things that can be done in terms of actually listening to women's responses, okay? Not feeling the need to fix it or, um, you know, things like that. You can just listen and learn and that listening and learning process will take a long time before you even get to a point where you're implementing policies or thinking about how a workplace could change. I get asked about flexible working quite a lot. What I would say um, is, you know, the best way to kind of begin that transformation in an organization is to sit down and really speak to the women in your organization and understand their concerns and learn first. And, and then I think there is a sort of more general issue about um, what I would call negative masculinity, which is <clears throat> obviously one of the root causes of, you know, violence against women and specifically the work I do in sexual harassment. And we have to do a huge amount of work to kind of unpack that. And I think that actually starts very, very early on with um, young boys. Um, and I think that would be a good thing going forward to kind of have a look at. But we have a sort of serious problem just in terms of thinking that women are expendable. They're expendable to the workforce. Um, and it's not true. It's not economically true. We know that organisations suffer when they do not have gender diversity. Um, they underperform and businesses cannot afford to underperform right now. Um, so I feel like we're just repeating ourselves. But... <laughs> Absolutely, thank you, Diva. Um, I've got a couple of questions here, actually. So um, let's start with this one. It's from an anonymous attendee. Um, Post-pandemic, how can women who have borne the brunt of homeschooling re-establish their sense of identity and equality in the home and at work? That is such a great question. Um, can I just say that homeschooling, um, Diva, you mentioned your friends, and so my son's five. And he's a dream. He's a dream five-year-old. But I, I take, I credit that to just being an older parent. I can't be bothered with nonsense from small children. And also, um, you know, I deal with men all the time. Come on. Um, sorry, didn't say that. Um, um, but he's five. He gets on at school, and then we were lumbered with homeschooling. I was a teacher for twenty years. I was an early year specialist. I was a head teacher for five of those 20 years and homeschooling was the single most challenging th thing I've ever, ever, ever done. I really, and some people I'm sure have got, you know, um, have thrived with it and done the best from it, but I just found it this challenging, relentless, pointless exercise in um, trying to implement a system on a relationship that that system didn't fit to suit. And, um, you know, so when his school opened, um, let me tell you, he was first at the gate 
and it's it's the wonders for our relationship and I think you know and that's my anecdotal story about it but the reality is it's incredibly challenging and Rosie mentioned um the luxury of homeschooling if you have a house if you have a garden if you have children with no um behavioral or emotional or social issues if you have access to food, if you have access to resources, if you have access to internet connectivity, if you have access and the wherewithal to understand how your relationship and your dynamic works, that's a lot of ifs. And that's a massive assumption that people will just be equipped and be able to do that. And I think, again, um, it's a really, really backhanded compliment at the strength of women at being able to adapt and deliver on that. Um, you know, they'll be able to do it. It will be fine. And you know what? We did it and it wasn't fine. It was awful. And we don't want to do it again. And I think um, what I would suggest is really looking at the networks and the um, support mechanisms that exist, looking at what exists through school, looking what exists through your workplace. If you work, I work for the TUC. I've been a lifelong trade unionist. I would always say, go to your union, talk to your union, and don't be afraid to ask for support when support is needed. I think we really have to um, amplify that message of, if you need help, ask for it. And if that's from friends, if it's from your employer, if it's from a another source, then do that. And if you don't know how to do that, you know, get in touch with um, your union if you're part of one. If you don't know if you're access, you have access to a union, get in touch with us at the TUC, we can support you. Um, but yeah, you know, no one should be afraid to reestablish who they are. Um, and, and, you know, just just to, one last thing on that is I don't really know who I am. I don't know who's going to come out of this um, post-pandemic. And I think we have to accept that as well. You know, we've been through a lot and the long-term mental health and emotional health impacts of this can't be understated. Rosie, I can see you there. You're keen to say something. I was just laughing in a way. I shouldn't laugh because it's so awful, but the schools do open on Monday, yes. And I was just thinking that Kudzi was talking about all the ifs. And even if the answer to all those ifs was yes, it would still be horrible. And so when you take all those ifs away and you start to peel back the onion, the level of stress we've put on people, I do think the idea that they're, they're going to immediately, that people are going to immediately bounce back and, and, and be able to kind of perform as they were before, but in terms of identity, I think one good thing is we kind of know, we, we really know what we're doing in society. We know that about the infrastructure of care and how it's holding society up. And I hope that we will never again allow that to be treated as a marginal concern. And I hope that will be a core part of our identity. And I hope that more people will say, be willing to say at work, I'm leaving at four now to pick my kids up, men and women, or whatever it might be. And we're just going to be resistant to that whole crushing narrative that human beings are individuals not connected to others. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you, Rosie. Like I think, and I really think people are going to expect things to be different because I think there's some research emerging already that um, lots of people are planning to quit their jobs or switch jobs if their employers just refuse to do flexible working after the pandemic is over. And we see in countries like Germany, they are creating a, a right to work at home, uh, which would be sort of, um, you know, an, a worker's right available to them. Um, and I think, yeah, you're going to have to do flexible working because you're going to, otherwise, so many women will not be able to return to the workforce just because of 
inadequate childcare options. Um, you're going to see a real depletion in the workforce. So you're going to have to offer alternative um alternative ways to work and, and unfortunately if you don't do that what, you, what you're going to see is more women being pushed into poverty and debt because the bills will have been piling up over the, the people who haven't been able to work and um, who've been who were made redundant straight away um, they are possibly being put into a lot of um, poverty right now um, on top of you know 10 years of austerity um, so things are really bad. So we're going to have to innovate, I think, to a certain extent. And there is a place for things like job sharing and things like that, you know, to, to kind of um, to kind of do that. And I think there is going to be a need to set clearer boundaries in the workplace between what is work and what is personal, because we all know working through, you know, having survived this pandemic together um, just how important that is now and I think it won't be possible to just go back to the way things were and also another just in terms of my specific work as well I mean there is um we are anticipating that when nightclubs are open and schools are open and um, universities are open um, and workforces are, are back in workplaces there is going to be a huge spike in violence against women um, there will be it will just go boom, you know, because that will be exactly what happens. Um, and there is absolutely no preparation being made for this, no acknowledgement that that is very likely to happen. Um, so we have to do that kind of work to kind of make people understand that. But yeah. We've got quite a few questions um, coming through now. So um, we've got sort of 10 minutes left. Let's try and get through a few of those. Um, this one, perhaps Diva will come back to you on this one. This is from uh, Tony, who's um, asked the question on Twitter. Um, and that is, what will happen, RE, um, employment tribunals for women who were sacked um, for reporting sexism? Uh, will there be a backlog? Will they still have a case? Yeah, um, I can answer that. Yeah, so one of the first things we did when um, the pandemic began in the employment tribunal um, for harassment discrimination cases, um, the time limit to bring a case to the tribunal is usually three months. Okay, so um, that's a tiny time limit as it is. So we kind of kickstarted a campaign and a petition to get the government to um, extend those time limits just temporarily, um, even to ensure that there wouldn't there would be opportunities to kind of hold employers at account to if they were doing sort of discriminatory behavior um, unfortunately that was not heard that was not heard and i think unfortunately these things are very silly decisions by the government because really it just costs them more money because the more of the backlog they have in the employment tribunal the the more money they'll have to spend um you know, releasing that that backlog. And there was talk of things like Nightingale tribunals and Nightingale courts and things like that. But um, what the, the, the truth of the, the answer to your question is that actually a lot of people are just going to give up. They're just going to um, give up going to the employment tribunal because there is not usually a lot of money to be had in the employment tribunal. Compensation awards are not sort of high enough to make it worthwhile waiting two years or three years to go to an employment tribunal it's just kind of not worth it and especially with the women I work with who have been sexually harassed or discriminated they kind of just want to get on with their lives and they want to put it behind them and they want they believe that if they go to another workplace things will be better 
Um, but of course, when that happens, those employers never get held to account. And um, if they never get held to account, it's very likely that perpetrators carry on uh, perpetrating and um, in dis dis you know, discriminatory practices just never kind of get called out. And unfortunately, we are operating in a system where unless the person who's been discriminated against holds that employer to account um, themselves, there is no kind of intervening organisation usually that will come and say, hold on, this is what this was a wrong, you know, this shouldn't happen going forward. Um, and also, it's just worth saying, um, the government now sort of has plans to introduce this um, new body, it's called the single enforcement body which would look at things like um, employment tribunal awards, which sometimes employers don't, they, they've been told by the court to give an award and that sometimes they don't even do that. So it falls to the person to have to pursue for the, the employer for the, for the award. So this single enforcement body is looking like a good thing in some respects, but what they kind of want to do, I think, is abolish things like the Equality and Human Rights Act, uh, sorry, not the Equality and Human Rights Commission, which is responsible, which is for, they're responsible for um, equalities law in this country, which couldn't be more imp important now. You know, we've been talking about gender discrimination and obviously there's a lot of race discrimination going on at the moment as well. Um, and if they kind of abolish bodies like this, that would put us possibly in a worse position where then there really is nobody holding um, uh, employers to account on these things. Um, so yes, it's concerning. Thank you, thank you. Um, one other question here. Um, do you think COVID issues uh, that women have faced would have been different if you had more female leaders on, in prominent places, such as if Theresa May was still PM? Uh, which obviously is an interesting question because we've heard about countries who have dealt well with the pandemic having female leaders, such as Finland and New Zealand and Germany. So um, I'm, I'll open that up to anyone. But um, I think... I mean, that's an interesting, I think the point is, if I think if we had more women throughout the decision-making process, so not just the leader, more women in cabinet, more, more women at the head of the organizations implementing, you know, it's not just one, one woman isn't enough. But I do think if, if Theresa May had been prime minister, things might've been a little bit different, yes, because I think, um, I, I think it's, I'm always very careful about what I say about things like this, because I'm a political scientist, I'm not a political commentator. I do think in terms of the change of who's at the top in terms of the government, um, someone like Dominic Cummings was quite outspoken in his hostility to some of the feminist agenda. There were people at the top who really were not open to these issues and questions. And when the pandemic hit, were not ready to receive those kind of concerns. And I think actually, if, if we had the Boris Johnson that we've got now, that, that actually might've been more receptive than at that time, it was a sort of sense, I think, that the government that we had at that time was still the government that had won the Brexit campaign and had, got, had won the election. It wasn't a government set up for governing and listening to a, a range of voices. Um, and so I think all of that was very unfortunate. Thanks, thanks, Rosie. Um, I've got, let's try and do one more question. I know we might overrun slightly. I hope that's okay. Um, I think it's a good one to end. Um, so how do we convince more women to get angry enough about everything being discussed today, today to speak up and to vote for change? And so that's the one's asked on Twitter. 
I would always say to join a trade union, you know, if you're if you work or um, join the networks that affiliate with trade unions, because we lobby, we campaign uh, regularly. Um, we were, you know, we represent 5.5 million workers. The majority of those are women. And so I would just say, join the organization, support the organizations um, that um represent you and your voice uh, i mentioned earlier we worked with um mother pucker who put out a survey we had 55,000 respondents so you know it's really tuning into those people that can amplify and all oh, and the other option is to get active yourself you know to stand for positions and to be representative to uh, to take part um but it's quite a sector specific answer as well I'd say join a political party because um, that, you know, that's where the decision makers are. I, I, I back up what Kudzi is saying too, but join a political party so that we have got those women's voices at every level. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with both of that. I mean, um, the first thing I do when I'm advising a woman is ask her if she's part of a trade union. And if she says no, my, I die a little bit on the inside because um, what I can do for her is quite limited. Um, so it is just wise to, to invest in a trade union because the only person that benefits when you're not part of a trade union is your employer. Um, they don't want you to know your rights. They, they benefit from you uh, not having access to the information. Um, and it's a very, very sensible idea. You should just see it as like work insurance, <laughs> work insurance, um, just in case. You can't assume that these things won't happen to you, um, especially something like sexual harassment, which I think people still kind of believe is a very kind of niche kind of unlikely thing to happen to you when actually it's incredibly incredibly important especially if you're working in a frontline role um and if you are in a kind of insecure work or zero zero um hours contract you know these things make you more vulnerable because um it's harder for you to kind of assert your legal rights. Um, and I don't want to be in a position, I don't want to be helping anyone. I just want none of this to be happening. So I think um, we need to kind of move to prevention of these issues, okay? Not kind of um, prevention in the kind of work I do. There's a lot more work we could be doing to stopping these things happening in the first place. Um, and I think if we kind of commit to that and kind of demand these changes in the workplace before the bad thing happens, um, you know, those bad things don't have to happen. And um, hopefully we're in a position where you never need to call me or ask for my help. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you. It's, it's good to end on some sort of practical advice as well. There. So thank you for the person who asked that question. Um, we could probably go on, um, and it's been absolutely uh, fascinating to speak uh, with all three of you today. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us. Um, but unfortunately, we have come to the end um, of, of the, the, the webinar today. Um, so thanks to everyone who um, was, was watching. Um, we've had lots of good questions, and sorry I didn't get to answer all of them. Um, if you'd like to get alerts about forthcoming webinars, you can uh, sign up on the Keep in Touch page of our website or email us at inquiries at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. Um, our dialogue and debate webinars take place uh, generally at 11am on the first Wednesday of each month. Um, and next month we are exploring um, the topic of restoring public trust. And so we'll be looking at social cohesion implications of declining public trust in government, the media and um, between communities. 
Um, before I say goodbye, I'd also like to highlight that, like all charities, Cumberland Lodge is facing difficult times um, during this pandemic. So if you've enjoyed today's event and would like to support our work, um, if you'd consider making a small donation, you can do so online via our Just Giving page. And we'll put up the link to that um, just straight after this, this webinar. And that's it for me, um, other than to say thank you once again to our wonderful guests, Rosie, Diva and Kudzia. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us.